0: Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, you'll hear from the authors that make Supply Chain Management Review such a special publication. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now to today's episode. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Talking Supply Chain, Respect Good Inventories. I'm Bob Troublecock, and joining me today is Larry Lapidi. If you're a regular reader of Supply Chain Management Review, you're already familiar with Larry's Insight column. That's something he's been writing for well over a decade, and he can, uh, when I introduce him, he can tell me for exactly how long. Uh, he's also currently a lecturer at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and an MIT research affiliate with extensive experience in supply chain management, especially forecasting and planning. Larry, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Bob. Well, I'm, I'm excited to have you here. You and I had a, uh, an episode, uh, I don't know, probably six months ago on forecasting. Uh, I know that's a real uh, passion for you. Today, we're going to talk about inventory, which I think is uh, related. So back in the late 2020s, we were coming out of the pandemic. Um, I had Yossi Sheffi, another MIT uh, guy, on as a guest. When I asked Yossi what he was watching, he said too many companies were ordering just-in-case inventory because of pent-up demand and then unreliable supply. And he predicted it was all going to come back to bite us in a year or so, recalling the Bullwhip effect. Fast forward a year or so, and uh, Yossi may look like a prophet. I know uh, when we, when I get to Larry, he's got some ideas on that. But also, just in the last couple of weeks, Wall Street Journal and the business section of the New York Times has been running articles about how we've gone from not enough inventory to too much inventory that's piling up and warehouses and on store shelves for all kinds of reasons. Now, normally, inventory is uttered by CFOs as if it was a four-letter word, and all that unsold merchandise only seemed to reinforce the notion that inventory is bad. But in Larry's November Insights column, titled Respect Good Inventories, he said, hey, not so fast. That's what we're going to talk about today. So Larry, kick us off. I want to backtrack a little bit first, since playing and uh, forecasting is your forte, and you've been writing about that for the past two years as well. If you look back, what happened that got us here today? And, well, in your view, where are we today?
1: Okay, well, unfortunately, today uh, nobody used to know what supply chain was. Now the whole world knows what supply chain is because if something goes wrong and something doesn't work, they'd say it's a supply chain glitch. So the good news is supply chain's gotten the uh, name. Unfortunately, it's not so great these days, but I think we'll, you know, we'll recover because uh, people need us, right? So that's it. But um, for for the most part, here's what happened to the supply chain. Basically, you know, one of my I have a friend who's a PhD in astrophysics, and I was describing to him what the supply chain looked like right now and what happened over the pandemic, and he said, you know, they wound the strings of the violin too tight. And what did he mean by that? What he meant by that is, you know, if you go back, a lot of the supply chains put in place are kind of uh, ones that, that used um, Toyota production system principles, right? Just in time, right? Uh, just in time basically was one issue where you got rid of any time element for buffering, all right? For example, uh, you know, generally when we talk about supply chain, there are three ways to buffer a supply chain, right? One is through inventory, if you have a lot of inventory, you buffer the system, and from any vagaries reg- in the system, you have excess capacity in case you see some capacity going up right, and, and that you didn't know about, right? And you also give yourself time to do things. If you give yourself time, like ext- you know, extending some prom- promising dates out further than you would normally give, basically it gives you these buffers all along the supply chain. Well, what happened is. Uh, you know, everybody started to move to just-in-time on very long lead times now because you were going back to Asia with some of your outsourced products, right? So you had just-in-time there. You had people focused on lean supply chains. To them, lean supply chains means no inventory, right? And basically what we had is, yes, we had, as Yossi says, the bullwhip effect happening because the bullwhip effect is nothing more than when you have changes in demand they basically get exaggerated as you move upstream all the way to the suppliers at the end, like the semiconductor uh, companies, right? That, that exists, that still exists, but yet I call this, during the pandemic, it was a bullwhip effect on steroids because it exacerbated all the demand so that it was kind of what we call the, uh, a positive feedback. Demand went down, so therefore, you know, that was a perturbation back to the supply chain supply chain when it went up the supply chain the, the up-tier supplies reduced what they were doing that impacted demand as well it feeds about and it kept feeding itself so you got basically the of effect on steroids so i'm not surprised there's a lot of inventory left right as Yoshi said and and you read in the in the paper but just because you have a lot of inventory left does not mean you didn't do well during the pandemic And an example I'd like to use is um, Cisco Systems. You know, there was this huge uh, dot-com crash, remember, where uh, internet stocks crashed and the telecom stocks all crashed. Um, And Cisco Systems reported a huge quarterly uh, write-off because they had too much inventory. And the press was saying, oh, they didn't know what they were doing. They got too much inventory. And that's when I first used the phrase, make hay while the sun shines. Because what Cisco was doing is they had a bubble called the dot-com bubble. Every dot-com company had to buy some network routers and service, right? So they had to have it, right? They had to have a site. So basically, Cisco was going gangbusters during the dot-com um, rise, right? And yeah, when it fell down, of course, they were left with inventories. But that was a good thing. I mean, they, they really sold all they could, and they took advantage of the fact that they were in a market that was just booming, and, and they made hay while the sunshine. So just because you have inventory, doesn't too much inventory, doesn't mean you didn't do the right thing, because what happened during the, uh, during the pandemic is all inventory was just the case inventory, just because what happened is, in the pandemic, is you were dealing with what's called decision-making and planning under uncertainty versus on the risk. Now, most people don't even know what the difference is, but basically what happens on the risk is you are dealing with some things and you make plans based on history because you've sold this product before, you know these suppliers before, or you know your customers before. And so you can do what's called um, decision-making on the risk because we can estimate some probabilities of things happening, right? Under uncertainty, you don't even know that because what happened when the pandemic hit first of all, your product was in brand new uncertain markets because even though you were there in the market for a long time, it's not there anymore not in the same way. Your suppliers that you've worked with for years, uh, uh, you know, that you were able to rely on, they became unreliable because they were frankly facing the same thing and who knows if they were going to be in business over the long haul. So what happened was pretty much from the start of the pandemic, Every inventory was just in case inventory. So basically, there were you know three kinds of approaches you could take. Uh, you could take an approach like Walmart and Amazon and double down on things and and make sure you have the goods so that when the, it's all ending, you basically are better than your competitors at the end. And I think we've seen that Walmart's doing just fine, thank you, and Amazon is doing just fine as well. They're both stuck with our excess inventory, but you know they gained the marketplace. Then you have others who took kind of a wait and see, you know, let's see what happens and React, right? And then you took some people, some companies do in the middle. So the fact that you just ended with the inventory doesn't mean you didn't do a good job to the pandemic to, uh, you know, have better performance in the marketplace.
0: Uh, Larry, I want to walk you through the points that you made in your article, because I, I was really taken with it. I thought it was a great, uh, a great article. So I'm going to just kind of walk you through uh, the way you laid it out. So, the first question you asked, and I think you were just hitting on part of it, but we can talk about it again is, well, why is excess inventory a bad thing? Or is excess inventory always a bad thing? We know what the CFO would say, but explain why you think the answer to that question is, well, it depends.
1: Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's the way I phrased it. So it depends, again, because similarly, as I said, just because Walmart has excess inventory. And, and Amazon does, that's not a bad thing. Now it would be a bad thing is if they had run out of what I call high margin inventory. So if you take a look at the uh, Walmart, for example, they sold, sold more in uh, home goods. People started cooking more at home. So the people who come to get their food and stuff every week or every other week could pick up uh, cookware and things like that, which are high margin items. So. If they have excess of that, that's fine. It means they just garnered more inventory more of revenues from from that higher margin good uh, at the end, and they can always mark that down because you no, know, they sort of get rid of it. So just because you had it doesn't mean you didn't do a good job. And think that, that was my point is that um, I don't know if we want to talk about the newsboy problem right now, but basically. Uh, you want essentially when you're doing good inventory management, you have you never you try not to run out of high-margin products, and you don't really care as much if you roll run out of really low-margin products.
0: So, uh, talk a little bit, just briefly. Talk a little bit uh, more about that distinct distinction between high margin and low margin. I mean, I think we all know the difference because in our you know our product portfolios, you know, my wife used to own a. Retail store, we certainly had things that, um, you know, didn't make much money on, but we uh, they brought people in. We had things that we made a lot of money on. So just just dive a little deeper into that.
1: Yeah, I think the thing is what happens in the decision as to how much inventory to play is, is something we call the newsboy problem. And basically it's an old problem goes back to operations research, which is actually my background. But basically, what what it says is that you you have to set your inventory level to get maximum profits, expected profits, you basically have to consider what's called the cost of shortage and the cost of surplus. And here's the story. so if you if your cost of surplus is very high, which means you know you basically have, if you have to write down inventory, that's that's high, right? So but, but, if you lost, but the cost of, of, of shortage is a lost sale potentially. So the example I like to use for a pandemic is Toyota. Toyota way back uh, 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 basically ordered semiconductors from their suppliers early on. They, bought, they had a big buy of semiconductors. Now, semiconductors in a car, it's not a big piece of the car. So it's a pretty inexpensive piece of the car. But you can't sell the car without it. So what you got is they did do a good job of buying a lot of semiconductors. And by the way, those semiconductors tend to be proprietary. So these are not standard semiconductors you get off the shelf. Basically, the semiconductor manufacturer makes it for you especially. So you 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 got to look at the cost of shortage, not just of the fact that you didn't sell the semiconductor part. It stopped the sale of the whole car. That's huge. That's why... Toyota didn't even go far enough. They should have just bought as much as they could as fast as they could, right? And that's really the story. It's the cost of, of shortage. The example I, I like to always use on this is, uh, you know, stents, stents that you put in your artery to keep you alive. Well, I've done some work with uh, Cordis and Boston Scientific and those stents have probably a margin of 90, 95% because all the stent is, is is a mesh wire that holds your vein open. And I think the price of making it might be in tens of dollars, right? But it's sold for $2,000. Why? Because it's a high value product and it saves lives. So now you don't want to lose that sale. So it what these, uh, these particular stent makers do is they make sure that their stents are in the operating room because, you know, if people need different size stents, and they can't lose that sale. Now, they might, but they won't want to lose the sale. So that's the story about supply versus demand, which means you really want to have great supply for products with high margins because you want to not lose that, that huge margin when you sell one, right? But if you're just selling bread, yeah, you know, who cares if you lost the sale of, of bread, right? So I think that's the that's the real story, and that's something you have to consider at all times. And that is the lesson of the newsboy problem: He's selling newspapers, basically. All
0: right. Uh, you know, two uh, two quick observations before uh, the next question. One, when you were talking about um, you know the semiconductor issue, I had a chance to interview um, supply chain leaders at both Flextronics and Jable to you know, very large contract manufacturers. And they both used the same phrase that goes to your, you know, semiconductor isn't very expensive, but without it, you can't sell the car. They called it the golden screw. Mm-hmm. And they said, that they said, you know, we all have inventory that we can't finish. It's work in process because we're missing a screw and the screws worth like two cents, but without it, we can't finish that particular assembly and you know they were talking about you know lack of the golden screw all through uh the uh pandemic um, so you know so there you go um the other one was um i was recently out um at a facility uh, operated by medline which is a very large uh distributor and manufacturer of uh, medical supplies and medical devices and medline was telling me that um In the last year, they have invested an additional half a billion dollars in inventory to bring their, you know, inventory and stock to four billion dollars and sort of going like you don't want to miss that sale uh, for them. They were saying, you know, they're in a they're in uh, an industry where um, access to their product really can mean the difference between life and death and that they felt like they needed to make that um, that investment in terms of peace of mind for their uh, customers. And when I met with them in September, it was when we didn't know whether there was going to be a railroad strike or not. And they were saying that they'd been sending out emails to all of their customers saying, don't worry if there's a railroad strike. We've already got product on the shelf. We can get it, you know, on UPS or FedEx or you know, on the back of our own delivery trucks to get it to you. So, in their case, holding a lot of in, you know, th- their strategy was to hold a lot of inventory uh,
1: because of that. Um, you know, I don't know box, if, this... if you're selling diamonds, oh, if you're... Club, You never want to be out of you never want to be out of diamonds, right? uh, you know, the margin on time is huge, right? Right. (laughs) Uh, This next
0: one, I don't know if this fits in your your worldview or the way you look at the advantages of holding good inventory, but let me throw it out there to you. Um, I had a chance to to talk to the uh, former global CPO of J&J. And his argument about, you know, procurement going forward is that for the last decade or more, organizations have invested in CRM, invested in the customer. Uh, And that was because supply was predictable. Um, They had lots of reliable sources of supply. And he said in the future, he thinks we're going to need to shift that and focus on SRM or our supplier relations, because he said, you know, in this environment, the company that has supply that has product on the shelf is going to be the company that wins in the marketplace. Kind of, I think goes along to your idea of, you know, Cisco and Toyota holding things. But when you think about this idea of holding good inventory, does that resonate with you?
1: Uh, Yes. Yes and no. Let, Let me, let me give you a little comment on that. I, first of all, I've always said that, you know, I did this work in what's called exit supply chain, right? And, and my definition of excellence was the supply chain uh, organization supports sales to the extent where the sales and marketing people would admit that they actually increase revenues because of the way the supply chain is managed, right? That, is, to me, is excellent, right? It's your, you know, and so, you know, you get all these people uh, who talk about this excellent supply chain, this excellent supply chain, it's all financially based. That's not really it. You know, the example I always use is, you know, Walmart, uh, you know, uh, basically Amazon lost money for almost 15 years. But just because they didn't make any money doesn't mean they didn't have a great, they had an excellent supply chain for the web, right? So you can't use financials. So my view is always excellent is in the eyes of the beholder. And the beholder here is sales and marketing, which takes me back to his view that we're going to move away from CRM. We're not going to move away from CRM. The market's too fluid. And I've always told supply chain people they have to basically support the revenue side of the house as much as possible. All right. Now, here's what he might be talking about, but you'll have to let me know what you think. What we've probably not got, done a good job in supply chain is figuring out and giving information to the marketing and sales people as to what we can make with what we have. So if you take a look at the pandemic, you could get certain things, you couldn't get certain other things. But I don't know if the supply chain people, you know, had that uh, that uh, kind of communication with sales and market people to say, you know, you can't sell this product. But by the way, you can sell these too. All right. We have stuff to make. So it's kind of this uh, concept of let me tell you what we can make and we'll sell it. It takes you back to the old days when manufacturing was driving everything, where we would basically sell what we make we we moved from that to make what we're going to sell, right which is the whole uh, philosophy of supply chain over the last couple of decades. I think what this this j and j person might be talking about we're going to move a little more closer to yeah, also let us know what you can make for us to sell and that's an important piece as well because i I'm not a big advocate of demand constrained uh demand constraints at all, right? We should always support what the the sales market people want to sell, but we should do a better job of saying, hey, you know, we got this supply. See if you could sell it. All right. That's probably where we we, we lost. And I think that might be what he's talking about.
0: Uh, Two last questions, and they're both going to focus on the idea of good inventory. We all know what bad inventory is. So at the end of the article, you made a confession that, you know, when you were a planner, probably drove your CFO nuts, which was that you love inventory. But you you um, qualified it by saying you loved good inventory. So first, explain what you mean by that. What is good inventory?
1: Good inventory has a purpose. If it doesn't have a purpose. It shouldn't be there, right, because that's you know, it's it's an asset. But let me go, let me go back to the, the why I say that inventory has a bad name. And I think it then you know, we could start from there. Uh, you know, I talk about this in my, in my class on business analytics. I talk about something called return on assets, right? Return on assets is nothing more than profits, which is revenue minus cost divided by assets. And we just talk about it's a fraction, right? So now, if, if I want to raise my return on assets, which is supposedly a good thing from the investor perspective, right? I can either raise the revenue, right? And keep everything else the same, or lower the cost to keep everything else the same, which means the top part of the fraction is increasing, right? So everybody loves doing that, you know, increasing revenues, decreasing the cost. The bottom, the denominator, is assets. Uh, the smaller that is, the higher return on assets. So, you know, one example I give is why do co- companies, executives, uh, take a shareholder view, for example, and outsource their manufacturing because basically you get rid of the assets, right? And you might keep the revenues and costs the same. And guess what? Your your return on assets went up. So there's a tendency to want to downplay assets as much as possible, and that's the that's the rub on kind of what people think. All you know, the lean guys, right? All inventory has to be justified, right? Which it does, but but all inventory should not be almost, right? So it's like inventory got a bad name because of that, it affects the return on assets, right? And that's that's right. the point. I think that's the, that's when I said, you know, there's, there's bad inventory, good inventory, but the model has always been because if you're financially oriented and you care about what Wall Street thinks about you, you're gonna wanna show less and less assets, you know? Uh, if you remember, if you remember Enron, that CEO went to jail. Why? Because he hid his assets on the on, on the financial uh, uh, statements, right? So that is what I mean by good or bad inventory. But let me give you a little background as to why I'm so appreciative of inventory, right? I don't know if you know this, but my first job was at a company called Arthur D Little. It's a consulting company in Cambridge. I, I went there. But there they uh, they the this president of the company was a guy named John McGee, he wrote the personal logistics book. And I read it and it's a lot of it's about inventory and the decoupling of uh, of operations, you know, basically where he says, if you want to decouple two operations that are sequential for you know, one they're sequential, right? You want to put some inventory in the middle of those two entities. Let's say it's the manufacturer and the supplier and the customer or something. You want to put some inventory in the middle to kind of decouple things if the things happen on either side. So he talked a lot about the use of inventory from decoupling the operations. So And he wrote a book about that. And and basically, uh, it was like one of the first books on logistics and inventory management. The second thing is, uh, there's a guy named Robert G. Brown back in the 60s and 70s that invented exponential smoothing forecasting methods, invented a lot of the, um, the, uh, the ways of managing inventory uh, mathematically, right? Worked with IBM, Caterpillar, John Deere, all these people who had to manage huge inventories. And, he left a legacy at A.D. Little that I picked up. Well, I was only there four or five years, but I picked it up um, as well as the other stuff I picked up. So in my mind, inventory was always a good thing because it did something. It decoupled operations. That's just one thing that it that it does. I could keep going, but I want you to make sure I understand the time frame. What you got, right?
0: That's great. So just to, to, to wrap it up, since we're talking about uh, good inventory, Just to finish us up, give us two or three examples of good inventory and what makes them good.
1: Okay. Um, so the most obvious is the customer-facing inventory. What makes them good is they're close to the customer. I can get them there quickly. And by the way, whenever I make a sale, I want to make it as quickly as possible, right? So I get my help my cash flow. So the good inventory is have uh, customer-facing inventory. Now, that's a problem because it involves a lot of inventory, but there's some sometimes you have to have that good inventory close to the customer. Uh, and, for example, the one I used was, you know, the stents. They put some inventory right in the operating room, right? And I don't have a problem with that. And so inventory close to the customer where you can make the sale as soon as possible is, is, is good. Let's take uh, pre-build uh, inventory. Uh, you know, Basically, if you pre-build finished goods, so like before the start of the holiday season, a lot of companies make some stuff for a few months in advance and pre-build it and then send it out for the holiday season. Now that's one approach. It's what we call production smoothing, right? And production smoothing allows you to run manufacturing in kind of a smooth way rather than in accordance with the way demand's going, which means at the peak demand, you've got production at a lower level. And you smooth it out. Now I uh, did some work with in house abortion, talked to their operations research people. They had claimed that they had saved having to do a whole plant, a brewery brewery, right? They saved the company a whole big from making a whole brewery and the capital costs associated with that by better inventory management procedures like production smoothing. So that's another asset that's that's an issue right is the is that so what you've done is saved an in inventory and you've saved having to build a one billion dollar plant all right, or whatever the price of doing a brewery is these days right so that is pre build smoothing your production that is a story where you're you're creating inventory pre build because you know you need it, but basically you want to have to avoid having this manufacturing capacity to reach the peak at when the peak occurs you smooth out production so that is is good inventory, right? Um, I talked about the buffer inventories. That's the decoupling of operations, you know. So basically, if you have an operation that's a bottleneck in your system, and by the way, a good book to read on this is The Goal by Eli Golret. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it's in the, in the novel. As much inventory is in front of that bottleneck so that it never runs out because it's the bottleneck in the system. Uh, good inventory, one good inventory is one that decouples things uh, in the sense of what's called the theory of constraints. Theory of constraints, and there's a very good book on this by a guy named Eli Orat that really is written in the form of a novel, but it talks about putting inventory at various places in, in sequential operations, right? So let's say you have a bottleneck operation, which is bottlenecking the whole su- supply chain or piece of the supply chain, whatever it is. Since it's a bottleneck, you want it to be and it, you want it to work all the time. So what you do, you put in front of it, buffet, what's called buff inventory. And basically that keeps things, uh, keeps things flowing and, uh, and, and basically it doesn't run out of inventory ever for what it needs to keep, to keep operating, right? The other side of this is if you have an operation which tends to break more often than you like, well, you have an op- operations that are after it basically put inventory in front of them so that if the operation that you're looking at is broke down and has to be repaired or whatever reason it's breaking down and you, you basically keep that other one going. So basically theory constraints says you are as good as your constraints and you got to get rid of constraints as much as possible by being constrained from something that is the bottleneck as much as you, as you, as you can. And also for things that tend to break down or have, you know, basically they might be transferring from one product to the other, whatever the changeovers are, might be another way, way you do it. So I think that is uh, uh, kind of real good inventory, right? Keeps operations moving, right?
0: Great. Um, Larry, thank you so much for that. Like I say, I, I found it a really compelling uh, article. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, you can find Respect Good Inventories I believe, Larry, it was the November issue or the September issue?
1: It's November 22, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's the November issue of Supply Chain Management Review. You can find it online at scmr.com. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Larry Lapidi for joining me today. I hope you'll be back for our next episode. Until then, for Supply Chain Management Review and Talking Supply Chain, I'm Bob Troublecock. And again, look for respect for good inventories on scmr.com. Larry, thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Bob. Thanks for having me. Talking
0: Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, on iTunes, or under SC247, or just Google SC247 Podcasts. For more information, be sure to visit scmr.com. We hope you'll join us again.